Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, but if you're watching this live on YouTube, then you know there's someone with us, a guest, a man that needs no introduction and therefore will get none. Mike Green, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emil. It's a pleasure to be here. Jeff, you have been talking to Mike Green off and on, and you said it would be a great idea to have him come join us. And I believe it's time for both of you to perform a mea culpa, admit to the world that you're wrong about consumer price increases, inflation. This will be a highly rated show as you guys admit the error of your ways and what you did wrong and what sort of penance you will pay. Jeff, Mike, who wants to go first? I think, you know, our tension here is that we've narrowed it down to the world's smallest circle of people who are not buying into the inflation uh, idea that this is actual inflation and that there's some sort of meaningful distinction between consumer prices for other reasons and consumer prices of the old inflationary model. I don't know, Mike, is it just you and me left? Are there anybody else out there in the world after a year of relentless, hey, you guys, inflation's here. It's out of control. It's only getting worse. So I will tell you within my firm, uh, my good friend, Harley Bassman, who you and I chatted with, his view is is that we ganged up on him. (laughs) Um, You know, is is constantly saying, Mike, when are you going to make the public apology? So the quick answer is there is no apology coming, right? Because I I do think that we continue to be amongst the smallest group. There's a few others that I would toss in there. Alex Gurovich is a good friend of mine who feels somewhat similarly. Lacey Hunt, I think would would identify in the same camp. And I do think it's really important that like we do acknowledge that what people perceived we were saying in terms of the transitory inflation, you know, the transitory shift in prices and really what we've seen is a shift in relative prices that is designed to facilitate the allocation of capital in one form or another or reflect shortages, scarcity, et cetera, that has emerged as the world has tried to reopen, that we acknowledge that the transitory phrase was misunderstood and we probably should have done a better job of helping people understand that one we were talking about a rate of inflation as compared to a price level per se right because much of what is going on is we are being forced to restructure supply chains recognizing that some elements of those supply chains have shifted irrevocably right so china's involvement russia's involvement the ability to ship stuff on a super efficient logistic system has certainly been damaged. It's unclear how much that will recover. And as a result, prices are going to have to be higher to encourage certain types of investment, certain types of restructuring of investment of supply chains. But that's not actually inflation, right? Which is this generalized rise that is tied to monetary policy. Mike, that's where we always lose people, because once you get into distinctions, it's like, no, we don't care. Right. Gasoline price, we're, we're getting killed at the grocery store. So what do we care why we call it this or that? It's happening. It's prices are rising. And, you know, I, I try to make the argument all the time. Emil does. We get it in the comments section. We get it on Twitter. And it's it's really what we're trying to tell you is that there is a difference and it's not a meaningless difference. There's actually right. something serious going on here in, in terms of what it means about the future as well as the present. Well, and, and I'd go beyond that and say it has immediate implications for the response from policymakers. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had an exchange actually earlier this morning on Twitter where an individual I, I respect quite a bit said, you know, it's outright theft. It's like, we're, look at the damage we're doing to the poor by having Fed funds rates 10% below CPI food inflation. 
And my reaction to that is, well, I don't understand how increasing Fed funds by 10 percentage points is going to help feed all the now, you know, now newly unemployed, of which there'd be an unbelievable number, right? Yeah. How do rate hikes get more oil out of the ground? Perhaps if you inject the hot air into the <laughs> into the well bore. Um, but uh, this is exactly the struggle that I'm yeah. I'm trying yeah. to understand is it feels to me that the prescription from, oh, my gosh, we've got higher inflation. And I use the performative Ben Hunt inflation in that context, that somehow or another that that is supposed to result in better outcomes when all I can see is the reverse. Right. Historically speaking, this is not a good scenario for anybody. And it's not an inflationary scenario. It's a recessionary scenario, because as you said, investing in supply chains, paying higher prices to move goods around is a friction. It's not a grease. It's not monetary. It's not money rushing into the system and greasing everything. It's it's causing harmful redistribution through almost every facet of society. And I think we're already seeing the problems with that in places like Europe, pre-Russia, where, you know, there's a reason why markets are so pessimistic. It's because this doesn't usually end in sustained inflation, but it's not a monetary event. It usually ends as we're actually seeing. It ends with the, the old term demand destruction. Well, and you've heard me repeatedly say, and I know you say it all the time as well, you know, anyone who's ever traded commodities knows the expression, the cure for high prices is high prices. Yeah. Right. And that's because it works on two vectors, right? There's at minimum two vectors, right? One is high prices destroys demand for consumables, right? There are obviously collectibles where it works in reverse, but there is nothing collectible about oil per se, right? It may eventually become a collectible, but who knows, right? The second dynamic is, is that it does stimulate supply. And I was just having an exchange with somebody online where they asked me exactly this question. I said, how could you possibly think this? And meanwhile, I can just point out U.S. natural gas production just hit an all time high. Right. Oil is within basically a million and a half barrels of its all time peak in U.S. production. The recovery in oil production that was never supposed to happen is firmly underway. And we're presuming that it's gone forever, right? That this is never going to change. Now, of course, the problem is if I hike interest rates, that reduces the available capital for the oil companies to, in a non-equity way, fund investments that could lead to even higher oil prices. So we do potentially have a neo-Fisherian dynamic Right to to quote the James Bullard from 2011, who has been mysteriously replaced by the James Bullard of 2022, who now thinks, you know, then he thought that hiking interest rates was the solution to raising inflation, and now he seems to think that hiking interest rates is the cure for inflation. <laughs> Whatever the Fed does, it always works, right? Yeah. Well, and then the other thing that I'm, you know, since I'm riffing on on nonsense coming out of the Fed, the latest one, I don't know if you've caught this article out of the New York Fed. Don't fear the yield yes. curve. Reprise. <laughs> we just went over that. Yeah, it's I mean, this is such a remarkable document because the, written in 2018, it confidently asserted in 2018 that you should not fear a flattening yield curve, an inversion of the yield curve, because it would not you know, lead to a recession. And of course, the result from the recession of covid, which I think you and I would both point to and say, no, there was already a recession in the works. Yeah. What COVID did was accelerate it, deepen it, and then the, the um, extraordinary stimulus response pulled us out of it very, very quickly, right? But it did actually predict that, re that recession. They now, of course, are, are interpreting that as 
No, it didn't. It you know, there's no possible way. I know the like COVID let them off the hook or something. You know, it's oh, we 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 don't know what would have happened in 2019 or 2020 because COVID came along and all bets are off now, right? It's just right. absolutely. You know, it's ballsy, really. It's brazen. Well, it's a bit, but even worse is where they're focusing the efforts and saying, if you actually want to use the yield curve, you should use. So instead of the twos, tens, which, by the way, I actually think is not a great metric. We can right. talk about why. But they're trying to focus people on what they call the near forwards, yeah. which is the relationship between the three month and the 18 month. And part of the reason that I just find that so so incredibly ironic is because it's important for people to understand the way that rates are set. There is a component of rates that are set by the market to a certain extent, right? That's definitely true for longer dated and in particular longer dated forwards where you're pulling yourself away from the policy. But there is no scenario in which I can look at a three-month rate and say that represents anything other than what the Fed has told me they're going to do. Yeah, there might be a tiny little bit of a risk premium, but, you know, that's at most. Right. Tiny, tiny, yeah. tiny amounts. Now, there's slightly more risk premium at the 18-month point. But even there, you're effectively forced to acknowledge what the Fed says they're going to do. Yeah, that's the risk. Right? That's the, if you're looking at it as purely risk, the, the biggest risk if you're holding an 18-month instrument is Jay Powell and the Fed. So it's, it's closely tied. When I think about what they have effectively said in that paper, it is don't fear a recession because the Fed doesn't see a recession. <laughs> I mean, that's really what that indicator tells you, right? If that's what they're thinking, like, I want to run screaming from the building. Well, you know, the, the really sad part is the chart they included in that paper kind of disproves the paper already when they showed the difference between the long term, the 210 spread. And I agree with you, the 210 isn't the best part of the curve to look at, but yeah. whatever. So the long term spread and then the short term spread, you know, you go back to 2000, for example, the longer term spread started to invert back in 99 and then early 2000. Well, the near-term spread was steep and steepening as Alan Greenspan's Fed kept raising rates. And people forget he did a 50 basis point rate hike in May of 2000, which was the last one. And then the near-term spreads collapsed about six months after the long end had inverted, warning you of what was going to happen in 2001, which wasn't inflation. It was the dot-com recession. And it's the same thing in 1992. This is one of those things where I think it's really important for people to understand the mechanism by which we're actually describing this, right? So if you think about a rate path or what has to be priced into forwards, and forwards are always going to be a non-arbitrage condition. They're not really a prediction. They're a non-arbitrage condition, right? So if I think about that three-month rate, that is going to almost exclusively be determined by what the Fed sets policy rates at, right? And so a, a Fed funds rate is for a one month, a euro dollar is for three months. And so there is, as you point out, a little bit of risk that they could, for example, hike and then immediately reverse themselves or hike and then hike again very rapidly. So that can affect the difference between pure policy and what we see in, in the euro dollar dynamic. But when you think about Pricing that path, you have to use a binomial tree model, right? Where it's, did they hike? Did they not hike? You know, and that then sets the next level, right? And so you start moving through this dynamic. Well, if the Fed tells you that they're going to hike, that means that you have to shift the entire binomial tree higher. And the flattening of the yield curve is effectively the market saying, well, there's less and less probability of them being able to do that further out the curve because as they hike, they're creating the conditions that are going to require them to cut. 
right? So uh, like that's the way I would describe what we're seeing. If you look at a three-month, three-month rate or a one-year, three-month rate, right? So what is currently priced into the forwards, the inversion of the yield curve at the one-year forward point is unbelievable. It's a 1970s style inversion where, you know, basically Paul Volcker said, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. The difference this time around is then we were talking about 15% rates leading to that type of inversion. Now we're talking about a market that in the one year, three month is pricing in something like 275 to 3%. I don't have the number directly in front of me, so I don't want to lock myself to the exact one. But the market is functionally saying, yeah, we're going way off the rails. This is all about ego. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it's, you know, I think that's another point that we need to stress over and over again is you're right. The comparison here is either we believe that the Fed funds rate at 3% is enough to get rid of 1970s style inflation, or conversely, what does that really say about the economic circumstance if we only get a couple rate hikes or you know, eight or nine, whatever the number ends up being, and at some point the Fed has to turn around and start cutting rates within this short-term time frame? what does that really say about the condition today? Number one, it's not really inflation. It can't really be inflation. It's got to be something else. And number two, as you already, already said, Mike, maybe we were weak heading into uh, the economy was weak and, and slowing down heading into this whole rate hike thing to begin with. And I don't, you know, buy the other uh, mainstream explanation or Fed explanation that this low R star is a meaningful description of how we you are. Know, the Fed is constrained. There's something wrong in the supply side. Therefore, we can't raise rates all that much. I don't think that's really what's going on in the long end of the marketplace either. I think, is, as you said, it's basically two different sets of probabilities and outcomes where what's going on in the front is all about the Fed. And as we know, the Fed is going to do what the Fed is going to do for as long as it can do it. And in the back is a, almost, hey, the Fed's off in its own world. Let's look at reality a little bit differently. I think that's very well said. I wish I could say it differently. The next step in that process, though, and this goes back to a paper that I wrote in March of 2020, right? The Fed uses market signals in establishing its policy. And so this circular loop that we're describing where the market has to reflect the Fed, the Fed is now looking at the market and saying, what are the implications of it? As we're seeing intermediate term, certainly more than long term, and the front end of the curve rise rapidly, every indication I have from my contacts at the Fed is, is that the Fed is reacting to this and saying, oh, my God, we really are behind the curve. We have to be more aggressive in hiking. That language then filters into the Fed policy. The market then has to respond to that because yeah, the short term has to get steeper. <laughs> Correct. It's just right. And so, so what we've created is extraordinary steepness at the very front of the curve. Right, the three month to kind of the two year point is incredibly steep, reflecting the fact that the Fed, the market is expecting the Fed to hike aggressively, and. Again, that creates the conditions where once that actually occurs, if we roll ourselves forward after that policy, we've got a hopelessly inverted yield curve, right? I mean, that's that's just screaming from the rooftops, danger, danger. And it feels like the Fed, for political reasons, is trapped. Yeah. Well, that's I think that's the overriding uh, part here, to me anyway, is that the Fed, one of the reasons why they want to be aggressive and one of the reasons they're going to be aggressive is politics, purely. because. You look at the way the government is and the way things are turning out in, in terms of the November election and beyond, you know, nobody has put forward in the government some kind of credible policy that says, I'm going to do something about these consumer prices that are killing you. 
And really, that the only option left is the Federal Reserve. So you have to believe there's enormous political pressure being exerted on these people to just appear to be doing something because nobody else is. This is your job, Fed. This is your job, Jay Powell. So get your ass on TV and start talking about what you're going to do concretely about inflation. As we said before, it's not like rate hikes are going to start pumping more oil. This is all really political theater. And then we get into this, you know, this, I think you're right. The Fed is trapped. They have to hike rates, which then it gets translated into the markets. As we know, the Fed is also about expectations and this idea that the only way that this works is if they shock the market. And if the market is already pricing in steep rate hikes, then the Fed has to go even further to create that shocking moment. So it just becomes this, it's, it's almost like a clown show. It's almost like Kabuki theater. Yeah, I, it, you know, and one of the particular things that we're seeing happen in the market, and this is one of the more frightening dynamics, it's happened before. We've seen this play out in, in 2014 or 2015. I can't remember which one it was right now off the top of my head. There was a situation with the German Bund where a trader at a large multi-strat fund, well-known for its market-making operations for Robinhood, apparently left a teeny, what's referred to as a teeny, effectively a worthless option on the short option position against Bunds in their portfolio. And as rates began to rise, that option gained in value, right? Going from a teeny, which is typically described as a fraction of a cent, basically worthless, to the point that the commission associated with closing out that position would have wiped out the remaining profit. So let's just leave it out there. We'll let it expire. There's no way German rates are going higher under these conditions, right? Oil prices were collapsing, et cetera. But it created an environment in which as option prices rose, the demand to hedge that position required them to try to buy it back which then led to the awareness of this position and people began exploiting it, effectively making it impossible for this trader to buy it back. A single position that went from basically, you know, being worthless, I believe at its peak ended up being worth about a billion and a half dollars in lost P&L <laughs> for, um, uh, for a large entity. And it literally caused exactly what we're seeing. Now, Wasn't that the early 2015 spike in uh, German yes. bond rates? That was just after European QE, where paradoxically, at least in the, the mainstream view, rates started to jump higher. And I think right. that was April 2015. Right. And, we, and we've seen this consistently, where QE leads to higher yields, QT leads to lower yields in defiance of what everybody expects, right? Because they're focused on the dynamic of, you know, the Fed is out there buying, failing to consider that the Fed buying actually means that a lot of other people, one, need to buy alongside their, or, I'm sorry, are moving into riskier assets and therefore reducing aggregate demand, causing the yield curve to rise for riskless assets, less demand for riskless assets, more demand for risky assets. When we reverse that, it goes in the opposite direction, right? And so, you know, again, the, the simple theory suggests that, that, that something like that is happening this time, or, or I'm sorry, the simple theory suggests that we should see higher yields but what we're actually seeing is a very similar dynamic where structured notes that were sold designed for yield enhancement purposes that effectively paid a multiple of the spread between the two and the 10, right? So these were levered curve positions. Those structured notes have a floor at zero, right? So if the yield curve inverts, the issuing bank is eating that loss. So just make sure everybody understands that. If you're thinking about a yield curve, 
that has a spread between twos tens, I can lever that in a structured product so that I get, let's say it's at 100 basis point spread, I get five times that 100 basis point spread. So now I've got a high yield product that is tied to the level of the curve. If the curve inverts, I'm not going to then pay you five times that spread. You can't enforce a contract that requires me to pay you on a structured note that's been sold as, as a security. You can't reverse those cash flows and force me to now pay you that spread. So there's an effective floor there. When you start to approach that floor, the banks that have issued these have to begin aggressively hedging these positions. And when they start aggressively hedging these positions, you see the volatility blow out. You see extraordinary demand to you know, buy back that risk in one form or another that then influences the curve in the manner that we've seen, where you see an explosion of normal vol, and at the same time, rates move in a way that feels very much like GameStop, for example. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just look at this month, just the, the way the curve has shifted higher in just a matter of weeks. It's a pretty tremendous sell-off in that respect, but it's, it's the way it happens. It happens in chunks, which is not, you, not the normal pattern. This is not your 2003 to 2006 yes. rate rise. That's fascinating because I'm on Twitter right now and uh, Otavio Costa at Tavi Costa just tweeted out a picture of, a, of the yield curve, the 10-year U.S. Treasury from 1990 all the way through present day. And you can draw a line from the, from the 1990s all the way to down. And the most recent yields have crossed that line. And oh, no. so you're, yes, oh, no. exactly. So it's, we're in a, as he put it, a new market narrative. So that is not being caused by inflation. Did nobody hear Bill Gross how many times? It's just what you explained, Michael. That's what's happening. Is that right? Yeah, this is, I mean, and by the way, we heard the exact same narrative in 2018 when awesome. the 10 year crossed 325. Yeah. Oh my God, it's, it's off and to the right. It's just going to keep yeah. going. Guys, this is a blow off top. Like, you know, in, in yield terms, this is a blow off top. Historically speaking, when you see inversion, that's usually right around where yields kind of terminate. Because that's the market saying there's enough resistance here. Whatever's going on at the short end, there's more interesting stuff at the long end. Well, so the problem with that view, Jeff, is it's different this time because inflation yeah. is right. so high that there's negative real rates. And negative real rates are stimulus. And so the economy is going to continue to get hotter and hotter and hotter until, as was pointed out on Twitter today, the Fed hikes interest rates to 10%. <laughs> I'm going to ask the editor to put sarcasm around your, your frame as you're speaking. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's, sometimes it's hard to identify with my monotone when I'm being not serious, but I'm definitely <laughs> being not serious here, right? The dynamic that I would highlight for people is, is a couple of different components. One is, if I think about what's actually happening in rate space, and I include the dynamic of this option hedging, this forced hedging activity, right? That's what creates blow off tops. It's somebody who is being tapped on the shoulder and said, I don't really care what you think the fundamental picture is. Cover this risk right now, right? The second thing that unfortunately has occurred is that the central banks have a newfound appreciation for their best friend markets in terms of telling them what is really going on, because ostensibly the best and brightest in the world <laughs> are engaged in information gathering and marginally affecting markets to show the real situation. 
But what I just described with structured notes tells you this may have absolutely nothing to do with fundamentals. And so this is a situation where not to flip this around and criticize something that, that you have said in the past, Jeff, sometimes bond markets lie too. Yes. Yeah, as much as I love the bond market, I love the bond market signal. Let's let's be honest. It doesn't bat a thousand. Nobody does. You always pay attention to short run fluctuations and think, well, this is a short run fluctuation because, as you say, there's all sorts of technical issues that you don't know about. There's all sorts of shadow issues that you'll never know about. There's all sorts of other things going on. And in the short run, things happen. So as much as I love the markets, you never it's never 100% trust, which is why I always say we got to look at all the other markets too. never rely on one thing or another. Such as the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is tracing out the exact same path, at least as measured by the DXY, as bond yields right now. But it's sending the opposite message that it's getting tighter. So right. you got to look at multiple points of view. Yeah. How many times have we seen the market interest rates rise thinking QE is going to work? I mean, that's obviously a mistake. So. Yeah, the market isn't is is not perfect. I wish it was, but no, absolutely. That's you know we have to pay attention to short run fluctuations too, and they run in both directions. Right, and it is important. I mean, this falls into the category of technical analysis where you kind of are able to say, well, when I see this type of price action, it is a blow off top. Therefore, I know we're setting up for a pretty significant reversal. But the danger in technical analysis is when you start to interject your own perception of the fundamentals on it, right? And there's, there, there are more people out there that are so frustrated and so angry, in particular, I would argue, with the behavior of the equity markets, right? Which, you know, my work suggests yes. that there's limited information content in the equity markets now. To be um, charitable. <laughs> that they're thrilled. They're thrilled to imagine that the system is blowing up and, and that the, you know, the endless warnings that they have made since, you know, give or take 2002 are here, right? It's finally here. You know, we told you that you couldn't delay this forever. And it turns out that, you know, 24 years is the magic number, right? You can only delay it for 24 years. So it, it feels like there's very much a excitement around this idea that we're finally going to get our comeuppance. I mean, you know, I, I feel that all the time. That's the other part of the inflation story, too, right, is that we've warned you government spending out of all this stuff. It was going to lead to dollar crash, inflation, all this other stuff. It's it, that's I think that's the bigger part of the pushback that you and I get. It's it's almost political in that, in that sense where people have saying we've been warning you about this. Here it is. And if you say, well, no, this isn't it. This is not what you were really warning about. They get really angry. Right. Yeah, no, they definitely do. Well, the next thing is you mentioned the idea of looking at all markets, right? And so if the bond market is going through this technical feature, why are the equity markets near all-time highs? There's no risk of recession if I look at the S&P, for example, right? What do you think's going on there? What do I actually, I, I am with you. I, I, I write so little much about stocks these days because I agree with you. There's no fundamental signal. The idea that yeah. earnings are some kind of grounding for share prices, I think, is just complete ridiculous. And it's a it's a fairy tale that we all tell ourselves just so that we can feel good at the end of the day, especially forward earnings. Oh, yeah. We would just put down a number and say that stocks are fairly valued at pretty much anything. And so I have really come around to in my old age, the idea that John Maynard Keynes had expressed a very long time ago where stocks are nothing more than a beauty contest. And that's I think that's proving to be exactly the case. So you have all sorts of these other markets saying, hey, there's really something going on here. 
And if it's not priced in the stock market, to me, that just tells me that whatever's going on fundamentally hasn't registered amongst enough people at the beauty contest. Mike, I would suggest you tell me if how far off I am, uh, that it would be just the continuation of the passive investing glacier that's unstoppable, as well as foreign flows coming into the United States because times are tough and it looks very dicey out there, much worse than in the United States. So I would think we would have money coming into the United States from abroad, especially from Europe right now. Haven't there been a lot of outflows? But the major, major reason I would say would be the passive inflows. How close was I? A, B, C, D, E, F. Expulsion. Uh, so I, I would give you an A minus because I think you hit on almost all the points that I would highlight. I think this is one of the real challenges is, is if we think about the information content coming from equities, we have to understand that one, there is a drift feature that is created by the growth of passive. And people have heard me talk about this where passive inflows create a reinforcing upward drift in both valuations and prices. Right. So just mechanically, each incremental dollar that is coming into passive is biased to buy the stuff that has gone up and is most richly valued. Right. So that in turn leads to the markets drifting higher and higher. Problems become further and further separated. Right. Effectively, the, the, the unique characteristic of equity markets is as a company becomes bigger, it attracts more capital under a passive type framework. Right. So. The indices themselves are biased in this upward direction by the march of passive. The second component is we keep putting in place systems that are changing the market from a predictive mechanism in which people are with discretion allowed to say, I see risk, therefore I reduce my allocation to an increasingly systematic approach in which as long as I have a job, my money is flowing into passive vehicles. There's no potential for cash to be raised. And ultimately, this is forcing everybody to basically, if anyone who's trying to trade on a discretionary basis is thrown onto their back foot because the world's simplest algorithm is governing the vast majority, more than 100% of the net flows that are coming into the market, right? That simplest algorithm, you guys have heard me, heard me say it over and over again, you know, when you give me cash, if you give me cash, then buy. If you ask for cash, then sell. And as long as people are employed and we're seeing rising wages and everything else, the bias has to be towards that buying. Now, the irony, of course, is if the Fed engenders a recession, employment falls, the net purchasing declines, particularly amongst the younger generation or the higher income components, they become particularly subject to risks of unemployment. And the system can reverse itself with incredible ferocity, as we saw in March 2020, or to a, a certain extent in an un, you know, somewhat unrelated fashion, because clearly there wasn't a global pandemic. But in the fourth quarter of 2018, you mm -hmm. saw some of the dynamics of very modest outflows and what that did to the market. I'm watching this with serious trepidation. Yeah, and that's, but that's the thing, though, if we're talking about information content in the stock market, that simple algorithm is also a lagging indicator. It's, it hasn't become a discounting mechanism so much as is a reaction function which I think is a terrific way to describe something like October 2007, for example. I mean, we had a massive worldwide breakdown leading to a monetary panic and stocks were at an all time high in October 2007 because it wasn't the market foreseeing the Great Recession. The market didn't react until the Great Recession actually happened. And I think yeah, that was a pretty good example of the difference and disparities between looking ahead and discounting real information 
versus what was then more, even more nascent, the, the trends that you talk about, you know, passive investing and things like that, they've only become even more paramount as, we, as time has gone on. I would actually highlight that. And I think people tend to misremember 2008 as being more like, oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> Well, they tend to remember it being more like 2000, right? So 2000, you had a substantive collapse of the headline indices, the large cap tech-led dynamics that led into 2000 reversed. I've highlighted for people repeatedly that the small cap value index from March 2000 was up something like 150% leading into the recession that you know effectively began November of 2021, right? In the aftermath of the dramatic slowdown and exactly as we're describing, restructuring type signals that hit the US economy associated with 9-11, right? And, and into that, of course, you know, equities rallied until basically, if I remember correctly, January, February of 2002. And, it, you know, but it was a much more severe drawdown. If we look at 2008, I'm forced to kind of point out to people that the markets were actually barely yes. down. Until the summertime as of June 2008, right? I mean, Bear Stearns had failed, all sorts of the housing market was in the toilet. And I think equities were off, give or take 10%, right? So- At one point they re they rallied after Bear Stearns, the equity markets got within, I think it was, you're right, four or 5%, maybe it was 8% of their all time high from October. This is the middle of 2008. And it's just, you just have to shake your head at the massive monetary destruction, massive potential economic destruction, not to mention, that first half of the Great Recession was pretty nasty in its own right. If it had stopped in the middle of 2008, it probably would have been the worst recession since the early 80s. And the market was just, the stock market anyway, the stock market was just, eh, no big deal. Well, one, one of the things that I always point out to people is there was not a single month in 2008 in which Vanguard experienced outflows. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. So, you know, the issue is as passive strategies have gained share, the risk that we see outflows rises, right? So just probabilistically, the more people who have pure passive exposure, the higher the risk that that algorithm is engaged if you ask for cash, then sell. And the instances where we have seen that kick in, there are only, I've said this you know, publicly, there's about five periods in history that I can point to where we actually had net selling of passive strategies March 2020 was one in which there was a small amount. August 2015, there was a restructuring of Vanguard's target date fund formulation where they reduced domestic equities and increased international bonds. And you can literally see this play out in what everybody you know, incorrectly interprets was the China deval, <laughs> you know, which as I've shown people, like if that was the case, the China deval happened weeks before the events of, of August 25th, 2015, where just to, to remind people, that was the day, and I know there's definitely people in the audience who, who weren't actively trading then, but on August 25th, 2015, you walked in that morning and you couldn't execute right. ETFs because Johnson & Johnson opened at 15 cents, right? Like, you know, how do you trade a healthcare ETF that has Johnson & Johnson as 24% of the healthcare ETF when the quote on Johnson & Johnson is every, you know, is basically the bid ask is like 15 cents to $55, right? Yeah, that was not random coincidence. You had CNY down on what was it, August 10th or 11th. And then two weeks later, you had the flash crash on Wall Street where yeah, it was a Monday morning, I believe. Yes. It was everything was down and everything was illiquid. There was no bids. No, there, no, there was nothing out there in the marketplace. It, it, was, it was pure chaos. And it was if you go back and you forensically figure out what happened, that was a Vanguard rebalance. 
but no liquidity to absorb it, right? That's the thing. Correct. Mm-hmm. When, when you get we get just a minor amount of some kind of reversal, it's what is it? Uh, the fragility. It's it's the the system yep. is utterly fragile, and we don't, we're, you know, recency bias and confirmation bias. We don't ever think about it when you look around the. I mean, why are curves inverted right now? Because it doesn't take much for something to turn into something bigger. I think that's exactly right. And I would just, uh, so I agree with the use of the term fragility to describe it, but the the characteristic that I would use in economic terms to describe what we're experiencing is inelasticity, Yes. right? So as the markets become more and more illiquid and we are illiquid in rates right now, we are illiquid in equities. You know, the great irony is, is that we're off somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% on a year to date, you know, from all time highs in the S&P after this recent, most recent reversal. And the front of book liquidity, basically the size of the bid ask at which you can execute is down near the levels of March 2020. I mean, it's just, there's no liquidity out there. A, a reasonably small order in this, on an institutional sense can materially move the aggregate market at this point. Perfect. Now it's my chance to jump in. Wow. Fantastic. I've been loving it. I've been educated myself. I've got so many questions here that the audience would love to know, but I'm going to be selfish and pivot, not ask those questions about why the 210s is not a great predictor or why the Fed, why I would love to know, Mike, read your paper about the, uh, that the Fed does respond to market signals. I thought that was completely backwards, that they are ignoring the market. I would love to have answers to all those questions, but I'm not going to ask them. I'm instead going to segue to China and talk about outflows over there, Mike. I'd like to get your opinion about something because in the United States, if we've, or Europe, if we've got outflows taking place very well, it's going to be reallocated from equities to something else. But Russell Napier has been writing that he is concerned that we're revisiting what happened during the Asian financial crisis, 97, 98, where we transitioned from foreign direct investment into those Southeast Asian nations to portfolio inflows. And that portfolio inflows can turn right back around at the drop of a hat at the, you know, capital is a coward. And he is worried, he has seen, he has observed that that's what we're seeing in China, that we are now transitioning from mostly foreign direct investment to mostly portfolio inflows. And I would think that based on what's happening in Russia and how Team West went nuclear in economic sanctions and restricting flows and reserves, that maybe the people that are investing in China are more concerned about the return of their capital than on their capital. We may start seeing outflows out of China and that she is not going to allow foreign investors to dictate internal monetary policy, and that he would put down a, uh, a bamboo wall to prevent those outflows. That's his general thesis. But I think that's a big, big area that we would want to talk about is in the future, China, inflows into China. What are you seeing? Are you concerned about that nation? I mean, I'm beyond concerned for almost exactly the reasons that Russell is laying out. So from a corporate foreign direct investment standpoint, I would actually suggest that this is a much bigger issue for Japan than it is for the United States, because Japan's foreign direct investment has exploded in China to the point that assets in China represent a significant fraction of the balance sheet of many Japanese corporations. Little less true in the United States, but I also have greater transparency into some of those dynamics, right? So one of the biggest 
issues preventing foreign direct investment in China is precisely because foreign entities doing business in China can no longer get their cash out. Right. So if I am Apple and I sell iPhones in China and I accumulate cash, I can't transfer that out in a large scale return across the organization. I can borrow with that as collateral, right, to obtain the cash referencing that, but I can't dividend it out effectively to a corporate parent, right? That means that the demand for foreign direct investment in China only comes from new entrants that are now going in because the existing players are effectively cash rich in China, right? So that creates reduced incremental demand except for the marginal new player and anyone who is just discovering China as an end market, I would suggest, is a relatively small player, right? The second dynamic, this idea of the hot money, the portfolio flows, to me, is beyond transparent. The number of macro analysts who have told us that the single best asset has to be Chinese bonds because they're not going to allow the currency to weaken. And the yield spread that you pick up versus the U.S. at, at one point was somewhere in the neighborhood of 3%, right? So you'd pick up 300 basis points of excess return by investing in China versus investing in the US, and your risk of foreign currency depreciation was functionally zero because you know that the Chinese manage their currency against the US. Well, again, if we go back into the rate markets, the rise in US rates has now inverted that. So you're actually receiving more money investing in the United States than you're receiving investing in Chinese bonds. There's some issue around you know, cross-currency basis dynamics, but that's radically reducing the attractiveness of those bonds at the exact same time that we're seeing the risk of interacting with authoritarian regimes that could fall afoul of US policy. And we're very specifically seeing this. I'm actually gonna sit down on my podcast on Tuesday of next week with a gentleman, John O'Connor of J.H. Whitney, who we're working with to introduce you know, innovation funds that are China free, right? So this disinvestment premium is rising. And to me, that's a very, very straightforward dynamic that is going to potentially put a 1998 type scenario very much on the table. I would highlight for people that what happened in 1998, if it turns out that the problem is China, oh man, that's a much bigger story than what we saw in 1998. Yeah, that's not 1998. That's more 2008. Well, I mean, what I would actually highlight is, is that it's a 1929. It's a 1937, right? Those are environments in which large foreign investments, for example, in the Dawes bonds with Germany, we discover they're not going to pay, right? So you've lost that collateral. And when you lose collateral in a credit-based system, you reduce your borrowing capacity. And when you reduce your borrowing capacity, guess what? Jeff Snyder wins and you get deflationary <laughs> conditions. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants Jeff Snyder to win. No, that's, let's, not let's, even let's, Jeff Snyder. <laughs> I, I have the expression, I think I'm right, but I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a fair point to point out too, is that, you know, don't shoot the messenger here. We're not cheerleading for this. We're not trying to sell you something. We're trying to give you information about what we think are the material risks that are not being appreciated and understood. And as you point out, Mike, in some markets aren't even being priced as anything. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it's about discounting real information. Yeah, and it, which is made harder when markets have been corrupted by the influence of derivative instruments, as we were talking about in the bond space, policy decisions in the bond space. 
and passive influences across credit and equities, right? It's, it, it becomes really hard to try to figure out what is going on. And, you know, those who have followed me in the Bitcoin space know that, you know, the refrain in Bitcoin is, yeah, you know, whatever, boomer, okay, boomer, number go up, right? And, and the point that I make, and, and part of this is influenced by the relative success that I've had in my career and identifying things like XIV, for example, that, you know, was going up and, and you know, there was, there was no indication that there was any problem whatsoever until it behaved exactly like Taleb's turkey and went to zero in a single day. You know, prices can be pushed higher for very non-fundamental reasons. And you have to be really careful to understand that the signal that you're receiving about that type of, of event is almost always wrong, right? I mean, the, the, the ideal situation is one where prices are continuing to fall as a series of discretionary traders throw in their hand, throw in the towel and say, you know, clearly I got this one wrong, right? That sort of gradual transfer of risk is not a big deal, right? Because you're taking, you know, a debt instrument, for example, or an equity instrument, and you're slowly migrating it to people who can bear more and more risk. An investment grade mutual fund can't handle risk or an investment grade bond fund, if it's, you know, not, doesn't have to be a mutual fund, cannot take risk. And that's why you get things like fallen angels, right? They're downgraded out. I don't care. This is, we're not debating the fundamentals anymore, right? My requirement is, as this particular type of bond fund requires everything I own to be investment grade rated, or I have maybe 3% that I can hold outside of that. So it ceases to be even a discussion around what are the fundamentals. It's, you know what, S&P downgraded it, get it out of here. It's all a mandate issue. It, it doesn't include, if it's in the mandate, it's, it's in our fund. It's, you know, if it's in our fund, then it's usually in everybody else's fund and it just gets spread and far and wide for absolutely, sometimes absolutely insane reasons. And what really hurts are events like Lehman Brothers, where it goes from investment grade to bankrupt, right? Yeah, because exactly. then- in, Yeah, the blink of an eye. It can't make its way out of the money market funds, for example, right? So a money market fund, cannot take a 4% loss. Let's say it was, it was 4% of the portfolio, like, then you're breaking the buck and everybody wants out at that point, right? And that feedback loop is, in my opinion, something that is a growing risk. There are no shock absorbers anymore. And that's, I think that's part of the inelasticity concept. Yeah. It's, it's not about cash. It's about the ability for the system to, as you say, absorb an unusual amount of selling because that's used to be what dealers were supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be the ones standing in when everybody else is selling. I'll buy. I'll buy at a lower price, but I will. I will buy and we'll get order back restored in marketplaces. But yeah, as we saw in 2008 in in the repo market in September of 2019, we got this. It's almost like backwards elasticity, where the the more the system becomes inelastic, the more the shock absorbers pull their own capacities out, and it just leads to that that feedback loop that just. Unless something happens and interrupts it uh, artificially or exogenously, it just can keep going. Well, and, and, and again, the, the economic term elasticity and inelasticity, just to emphasize what they mean, is it is, a, it is the rate at which price changes for a change in, in supply or demand, right? And so when something is highly inelastic, a small change in supply or demand can lead to an outrageous change in price, i.e. what we're seeing happen in bond markets right now, right? Equities are on the other side, where I would argue that a lot of people are understandably concerned. This is one of the points that I was making for the past couple of weeks. A lot of people are understandably concerned that discretionary trader positions themselves bearishly, and there's no signal whatsoever that goes to the passive non-discretionary trader, yeah. right? So they keep buying. 
once the discretionary traders have gotten themselves over their skis, their confidence is so incredibly high that the end is nigh, right? This is the time. If you're not going to be massively short here, you know, when would you be massively short? It seems like the you know, impending nuclear holocaust on a Russian invasion of Ukraine might be one of those types of events, right? And so we found people with record bearishness. We found, you know, markets barely down, found people with record bearishness. We found that the hedge funds and CTAs were in near record short positions. Cash levels had risen dramatically. And yet the bid for Vanguard products continued to go up. And so once you've sold your last share and gotten as short as you possibly can, guess what your next move is as a discretionary trader? Got to buy. You're a buyer. Yeah. You're a buyer. Mike, your time is not worthless, meaning it's precious. We're running out of time in this show, unfortunately. Is there anything that we haven't gone over yet that you want to talk about briefly before we wrap up? No, I think we hit on most of the things that I would, would highlight for people, which is, you know, we, we have a very complex system that is exhibiting signs of breaking and the predictive mechanisms that we are used to thinking about, right? The discretionary portfolio manager who thoughtfully applies economic signals and says, you know, I think I should be raising cash so that I have the optionality to behave in a fashion that doesn't require liquidity in markets, that's broken. And, it, you know, as a result, this feels, you know, I would describe this as it feels very dangerous and that we can't, you know, it's, it's the Chuck Prince line, right? The music is playing. You got to keep dancing. Everyone looks back on that with the benefit of hindsight and says, what an idiot but it's an institutional dynamic. It's not that Chuck Prince was an idiot. It is an institutional structure. If you're Citibank and there's still demand for mortgage products, you're gonna manufacture mortgage products, right? And if your, your standard is to you know, hold on to a portion of them, you're gonna hold on to a portion of them because everything that we just laid out here, and this is you know, one of the wonderful things that we have to acknowledge, man, this is all opinion, right? We don't, we don't have the ability to see the future. We are able to look at it, I think, with a degree of dispassion. Um, hopefully that comes through in my voice that, you know, like, it's not that I don't care. It's that I don't attach my personal worth, you know, self-worth to did consumer prices go up by 7% or did they go up by 2%? But we're, we're watching a situation here that is very dangerous, where it is extremely hard to predict. But both Jeff and I would, would probably lean in the direction of saying, you still got to pay attention to the signal that's coming from that yield curve. You can't dismiss it. You can't dismiss the dynamic that the Fed feels like they're pushing things higher in response to the market, you know, raising and, and becoming more hawkish in their language, even as the conditions that require them to be more dovish are beginning to emerge. Jeff, do you have any final questions to Mike that he can answer in just a couple of minutes? No, unfortunately. I mean, I wish we could we, we could spend another hour or so. I mean, there's the supply chain issues. I think we wanted to talk a little bit more about that. We probably we probably could go on for a long time there. But just to echo what you just said is that, you know, it's extremely difficult. And you understand why the layperson has a whole lot of problems because they're not watching the yield curve. One of the things that we were talking about off air that I would love to get into a much deeper discussion, the probability distributions of the inverted euro dollar mm. futures curve. What does that oh, actually yeah. mean? As Harley always says, you don't take it. What is it he says? Uh, they're not a prediction. Euro dollar futures are not a prediction. And they're not. When you see the curve inverted, what that is is a probability distribution 
where the error bars are so damn wide that that in and of itself is the message, is that there's so much unbelievable uncertainty at a time when more people are increasingly certain that this other thing, that the rate hikes are coming and this is inflation, when the market is saying, oh boy, no, 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 there's so much more uncertainty than, than you really appreciate. And I think that to me is the underlying message here. And you're right, this is, this is opinion. We hope it's more reasonable, a reasoned opinion, but by and large, it's all that, it's, it's these markets are sending very distressing signals for very determined reasons. Emil, I, I, I wanna toss in just a few more comments on exactly that, because Jeff is right. This is something that we should really hit on. One of the things that unless you're very, very closely watching the Euro dollar or Fed funds market, you might not be aware of is, is that the value of options that would pay off in the event that rates went negative in this next cycle. Hmm. Yes, negative. Those are still negative. Negative. Right? Those are exploding in value at the same time that the perceived certainty of the Fed hiking is rising. I mean, that's right the now, ultimate the, tail risk hedge, right? I mean, it's the far left end of the tail. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, that literally is basically a bet that the Fed is going to completely throw in the towel and say, you know what, just everybody, you know, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, right? Um, welcome to the, the, we're going Oprah here. <laughs> Jerome Powell Oprah show, right? The markets are very much throwing up their hands and saying there's other stuff going on that has nothing to do with the Fed's certainty that is now behind the curve or commenters' certainty that, the, that they are behind the curve. You know, every indication is out there, right? Ranging from Fed papers that have a ridiculous approach to here's why you should ignore the yield curve inversion. I know they're well-intentioned, but that paper is just transparently terrible. Yeah. You're seeing similar dynamics in terms of the dismissal from the, the um, ISM of the signals that are coming from new orders deteriorating, which I would encourage people to pull up the new orders index and look at the deterioration that's occurring. Increasingly, production is going into inventory as compared to final demand. That is something that shows up with a lag and a bullwhip type effect. And of course, they're dismissing it, right? You know, there's no signs that this is really a substantive change. It's the exact same language that I've heard over and over and over again. There's almost no incentive when you think about something like the Institute for Supply Management to raise an alarm, right? And in all seriousness, they're looking for reasons to explain why this is not the end of the world because nobody gets paid for the end of the world. Right. I mean, it's it's really important that people remember that scene in The Big Short where so much else of The Big Short movie, I just want to lay this out, is is garbage. Yes. Right. In terms of the actual mechanics, it's wonderfully acted. It's an incredibly compelling story. It's the wrong story. Yeah, it's, it, you know, any such any film that has Margot Ro Robbie in a bubble bath is worth watching. But the simple reality is, is that the most important line there is that scene where Steve Carell is being forced by his trader to cover his positions, because if he doesn't, he's not going to get paid, right? You, you, you can't, there is no final solution. There is no, I hold till the end because, you know, um, I'm right, damn it. The simple reality is, is that if the end of the world comes, you don't get paid. You also don't have that much to worry about, but it's, um, you know, that, that is, to me, that is the single most important scene in that movie. Uh, Michael, 
you've educated the audience, but you've done more than that. You've actually done my job for me. You've given me a title for this episode. Quote, nobody wants Jeff Snyder to win. Perfect. <laughs> tell, there we go. It Perfect. is. That's terrific. Tell people where they can find you, including your podcast, which I didn't even know existed. I'm ashamed of that. I have a, I have a hundred podcasts on my phone. I had no idea you had a podcast. Tell us where people can contact you. Well, this one should be at the top of the list. Yeah. So first is the podcast is through Simplify. It's called Keeping It Simple. Uh, Harley Bassman and I invite guests on like Jeff Snyder. And then um, we beat up on Harley (laughs) is the the basic theme. No, um, Harley is a brilliant, brilliant portfolio manager and strategist. Um, he is the inventor of the move index, the, the volatility index for the rates markets. He's an individual who I have known and has been a mentor and friend for, you know, going on well over a decade now. Um, so I, I would never do that, but it is actually quite fun. Harley and I are, are good friends. We joke around, we, we, we push back on each other, but we bring on guys like Jeff, Lacey Hunt. We had Cam Harvey on to completely geek out on the dynamics of the yield curve inversion. Cam is the inventor of the yield curve signal and to talk about decentralized finance in the crypto space. You can find that and other information on us by going to www.simplify.us. We're beginning to roll that podcast out onto Apple and various other podcast platforms as well, but it's absolutely fantastic. You can register to be notified for it, et cetera. Yeah, you got to echo this. Harley is a great guy because not only is he knowledgeable, he rolls with it. He loves this stuff. You know, yes, we, we sort of beat up on him, but, you know, I think he kind of liked it, too, because it gave him an opportunity to to hit back. And just for people to, to understand where I came into all this, I got an angry email from Harley on, I think it was Thanksgiving morning, telling me I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, about, you know, I think, what was it, the yield curve or, or bond market or whatever it was. And yeah. it just kind of kicked off this whole discussion. Well, it, it, was, it was on inflation. Yeah, on inflation. Yeah, something like It was on inflation is what it was responding to and, and risk of much higher rates. Yeah, so I, I highly encourage everybody to check out Mike and Harley and just, the you know, it's not so much beating. I think he, I think he enjoys that as, as much as anything else. I've met his wonderful wife, Lori, and I assure you that Harley likes to be put into his place. <laughs> but, um, On that note, we should he, end it there. <laughs> and, and then just in terms of other ways, like in all honesty, it's easier not to, it's easier to find me than to not find me these days if you follow financial media. But I regularly am, am active on social media through Twitter. Uh, you can find me at, at profplum99, P-R-O-F-P-L-U-M-99, like the clue character and the ubiquitous, you know, late 90s, uh, you know, uh, put a number on because somebody else got there first sort of thing. And uh, confusingly, my avatar is Wallace Shawn uh, Vassini from The Princess Bride <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, the, the, the significantly larger and less bald individual that you see in front of That's you. That's inconceivable. <laughs> yes. Well played, but I am not left-handed. So Fantastic, Michael. Thank you very oh, much. Dear. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Mike. My pleasure. 